Good morning. I'd like for you to open the Word of God with me, please, to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 26, allow me to read from the book of Proverbs chapter 22. Verse 13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I will be, I will be killed in the streets. Now you read that, and you might think, that's a very legitimate concern. I mean, that's a really good reason to stay inside all day. But we got one big problem. This proverb is set in King Solomon's Jerusalem, which for its time was a state-of-the-art capital city, and there were no wild animals roaming the streets of Jerusalem. There were no lions outside waiting to eat hapless door-to-door salesmen. One paraphrase suggested by a commentator of this proverb describes it this way. When the lazy man was sent, he said, There's a lion in the road. I will be killed in the public square. So I've got to stay home. No one can expect me to complete my assigned deliveries. Now let me ask you a question. What was the reason, quote-unquote, the sluggard gave for going home instead of doing his job? Well, he said, there's a wild animal on the loose. There's a, a lion in the streets. What was the real reason the sluggard went home and didn't do his job? He's too lazy to do it. He'd rather goof off at home. See, that gives us a principle, and a principle we're going to see today And Acts 26 is simply this. The reason the sluggard gave wasn't the real reason. And the principle is the reason people give others, and sometimes we give ourselves, isn't necessarily the real reason for what we do and why we do it. The reason people will give you for not doing certain things they should do for you or with you isn't always the real reason. It may just be the least embarrassing excuse. And that's bad, but it's even worse when we lie to ourselves and say, as soon as I finish this, then I'll get serious about my prayer life. As soon as I finish this, then I'll get in the Word. As soon as this happens, or I can't go uh, and get involved in my local congregation consistently because of this, that, and the other. And quite often, although there can be legitimate roadblocks in life we can't overcome or that uh, divert us, quite often the reason we even give to ourselves isn't the real reason. And so today we're going to think about that principle and we're going to see it in action in uh, Acts chapter 26. But uh, before we look at Acts chapter 26, let me... Uh, share with you a few interesting excuses by college students as to why they could not turn in their homework. And remember, the reason isn't always the real reason. Here's one excuse. student once said, My furnace broke last night, so I was forced to burn my homework to save my family from freezing to death. And the student that told me that, uh, this was back in early September last year. It wasn't freezing outside, but that was his his reason. It wasn't the real reason, but it was a reason. Here's another example um, why college students couldn't do their homework. 
uh, the student told me, both my parents have the flu, and they're so sick, I couldn't possibly have them do my homework for me. And then finally, this is my favorite one. A student once said, I was too tired to do my homework, but only because I spent most of last night at a rally supporting higher pay for hardworking adjunct professors like my beloved speech teacher. So that, that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good one there. Now, we're in chapter 26 of the book of Acts. There's only 28 chapters. So we're getting pretty close to the end of the book. We're two chapters away. And so I think it's a good time to briefly review our memory aid so we can carry around the 28 chapters of the book of Acts with us. If you can remember the statement, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, you can remember the 28 events that highlight each chapter because we've connected with each letter in that saying uh, a key event that happened in each chapter, 1 through 28. For instance, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Jesus stands for Jesus ascends to heaven. That's chapter 1. E, establishment of the New Testament church, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. S, salvation of a lame beggar, chapter 4, unleashing a persecution against the church. And 5, J-E-S-U-S-S, is sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, let's go down. We won't go through the whole thing today. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. But let's focus on the last two words there, his bride, because this will allow us both to give us our context for verse 26, as well as review and preview of what we're going to see in this memory aid. So Jesus is alive as head of his H-I-S, chapter 21, H, Hebrews, riot in Jerusalem against Paul based on lies and innuendo, and they attempt to kill him, actually beat him up right there in the temple square before uh, Roman soldiers come in and actually rescue him. Uh, his bride, Hebrews, right in Jerusalem, chapter 21, chapter 22, instruction in the temple area. As Paul's being led away for interrogation by the Roman soldiers that stopped the mob violence, he asked for permission to speak to the crowd. Uh, this crowd of angry zealots that anybody else would have seen as a bunch of uh, murderers, Paul saw as people who needed to hear the gospel. Amazing, isn't it? His bride, H-I-S, Hebrews write Jerusalem chapter 21, Instruction in the temple area by Paul, chapter 22. S. Sanhedrin sizzles against Paul, his savior, and the gospel. Remember the next day after the Romans are trying to adjudicate and process this whole situation, they take him to the Jewish Supreme Court. And in the same way, a major riot broke out in the temple square the day before. A minor riot breaks out in the august chambers of the Sanhedrin and one side and the other side is literally trying to pull Paul apart. Sanhedrin sizzles against Paul. And again, the Roman uh, authorities, the, center, uh, the, um, the colonel especially, um, uh, Claudius Gaius, uh, saves Paul's life. His uh, bride, B-R-A-D, we're going through this memory aid. So Paul returns to Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey. A riot breaks out. Uh, he preaches to the crowd from the top of the steps after the Romans protect him. 
taken the Sanhedrin, they sizzle against him. Now we're going to go to Bride, B-R-I-D-E, bondage in Caesarea under Felix, Governor Felix, uh, in the Roman capital, gets to interact with Paul. In fact, what happens is the, the colonel in Jerusalem hears about a conspiracy to kill Paul, and so he uses overwhelming force and takes Paul by night from Jerusalem to the capital city, and there the sitting governor, Governor Felix, uh, interacts with Paul, and basically uh, he decides not to decide. The Jewish VIPs had come to insist that Paul was a danger to life and limb. He was anti-Jewish and anti-Roman. Uh, Felix saw through that, uh, but trying to uh, please everybody, he just kind of decides not to decide on the case, and Paul sits there for two years until the, the new governor takes over. His name is Festus, and so we're talking about his bride, B-R-A-D-E. B stands for bondage in Caesarea under Felix. Two years in a... Uh, uh, confined situation for Paul waiting for adjudication and then our new Roman, uh, excuse me, our in bride stands for Roman governor Festus reviews the case. He interacts with Paul and he realizes the issues really have nothing to do with, uh, Roman jurisprudence. They're really kind of religious questions. So he actually offers and suggests that Paul go back to Jerusalem to process this. And Paul says, no, basically, I can't get a fair trial there. They want to kill me. So at that point, uh, Paul, in chapter 25, formally appeals to Caesar, which, uh, as a Roman citizen, he had that privilege to do. So we're talking about Jesus is alive as head of his bride, B-R-I-D-E, bondage in Caesarea under Felix. That's B-R, Roman governor Festus, reviews the case. And here's Paul appeal to Caesar, and then in that same time frame, it just so happens one of the local kings that functions under the Roman governor, his name's King Agrippa II, visits Caesarea to pay his respects to the new governor, and uh, he ends up with Festus interacting with Paul again, because Governor Festus is trying to come up with something to put on the paperwork as he sends Paul to Rome now that Paul has appealed. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see inquest. We're talking about bride, B-R-A-D-E, bondage in Caesarea. Our Roman governor Festus reviews the case, I, inquest before King Agrippa. That's chapter 26 today. And then D-E stands for disaster at sea, shipwreck, and E, entry into Rome. Okay? So that's kind of our background. Paul is has been in Jerusalem was taken to Caesarea, 80 miles away roughly, the Roman capital. He's been there now for several years, and now he's appealed to Caesar. And so, boom, to Caesar he shall go. Uh, but the plot thickens because we're going to see in chapter 26, the reason isn't always the real reason. And this passage breaks down, these 32 verses break down like this. First, we have Paul's final defense there in the city of Caesarea. He has given the opportunity to explain himself, and he does that, and he realizes that, uh, as all of us as Christians should, as Christians, our lives really aren't about us, really about him, about our Savior. Paul's final defense in Caesarea, verses 1 through 23, that Paul's going to urge Festus and Agrippa personally to receive Christ, verse 24 through 29, and then the bottom line is, even though he's innocent, he's going to Rome. Uh, it's 
innocence and yet irony. He's going. Uh, it's God's will for him to go, and he is going to go at uh, Roman government expense by and large. Okay, so let's look at Paul's final defense in Caesarea, verses one through eight. The reason people give uh, isn't always the real reason, and here the reason uh, wasn't the real reason in regard to Paul. Agrippa, who is this local potentate who functions under the governor, is interacting with Paul in an open meeting so the governor Festus can have something to write on the paperwork as they send sends Paul to Rome. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Okay, Defend yourself. Explain yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make this defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself most fortunate King Agrippa that I'm about to make my defense before you today. Uh, basically, Paul is saying, up to now I've had to kind of talk only to Roman political leaders and uh, Jewish opponents of mine. And I feel like you know the Jewish background much better than the Romans, and I feel like you're more objective than my opponents. So I'm very thankful to have this chance to make this presentation to you. Uh, if you go back to Acts 9, verse 15, in connection with his conversion on the road to Damascus, we read in Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said to him, Paul, uh, actually he said to him, Ananias, in, in uh, Damascus after Paul's conversion, uh, or anticipating Paul's conversion, I should say, um, uh, and Ananias is the guy who's going to baptize Paul and interact with him initially right after his conversion, but the Lord said to Ananias, um, and by the way, when the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, hey, when Paul gets into town, kind of be nice to him. Ananias says, I can't do that. This guy's a professional Christian killer. And that's why he has to get this in information. The Lord says to Ananias, go, do what I'm telling you to do. Um, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings as well as the sons of Israel. Uh, go back to chapter 26. This is one of the occasions where Paul literally spoke to a king and bore testimony of Christ to a king. So he says, I'm really thankful to have you, based on your background and temperament, King Agrippa, to interact with here uh, today. Uh, because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews, Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Give me a full hearing, please. Look at uh, verse 4. So then, all kinds of Jews know that uh, about my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation, even at Jerusalem, uh, since they have known about me for a long time. I was an up and rising star in institutional Judaism, uh, quite visible, uh, a lot of people know me, know, know about my background before I came to faith in Christ, and you can ask them. There's still lots of eyewitnesses to back my story up. So all kinds of Jews know about me and my background, about my uh, growing up in and serving in and around Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time, uh, and they can tell you that if they're willing to testify, honestly, uh, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial, not because I'm anti-Jewish or anti-Roman or I'm a violent 
uh, threat to the government or to institutional Judaism. I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Uh, hope means something you're looking forward to. It's anticipation of something that you know is going to happen. And uh, Paul's saying, you know, the things that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob look forward to, the coming of the Messiah, that's what I'm about, all about too. Uh, rather than me as a Christian trying to hijack Judaism, Judaism was a glide path to Christianity. That's all I'm saying, and that's why I'm in hot water with these people. That's basically what Paul is affirming here. Uh, that is the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly seek to serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I'm being accused of the Jews. Now, I think the hope there in context is the anticipation of eternal life. But the problem for institutional Judaism at this time is, well, Paul describes it in Romans 9.30 and following. What shall we say then? That ironically, Gentiles, dirty, dog, goy, uh, people who weren't circumcised, who weren't under the law, who ate non-kosher, who did all kinds of bizarre and perverse things from a uh, sectarian Jewish, Jewish perspective, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness based on the Mosaic Covenant attained righteousness. They received righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And yet Israel, by and large, many exceptions, but by and large, Israel, the Jews, pursuing a law of righteousness, acting like the law was a ladder they could use to climb up to God because they would climb up high enough, they would earn enough spiritual brownie points to deserve salvation. But Israel, at the same time, Gentiles are hearing and believing and getting the uh, righteousness they need to stand before God. And yet at the same time, Israel, the Jewish nation, is misusing the law, trying to earn salvation by good works, and they don't arrive at the point of the law. Why? Why why is there a breakdown? Because they did not pursue it, their hope, their salvation by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just like Isaiah 28 said, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and yet the one who believes in him will not be disappointed. Talking about the Messiah there. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Jewish nation, all the Jewish individuals, including the violent uh, Christ rejectors that are wanting to ramrod Paul. Uh, I testify that my desire is for their salvation, for I testify about them. They have a zeal for God. He knows exactly how it feels to have a zeal for God and a zeal for the law and want to earn your salvation by being a good Jew but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness, the way it really is offered through Christ doing all the work and us receiving it by faith, for not knowing about God's righteousness in Christ and seeking to establish their own righteousness by their works and their merit, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They did not come as a sinner with empty hands and say, I trust Christ, they came with hands full of good works and saying, dig me, basically. And then Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So go back to chapter 26. Paul says, hey, I'm standing trial here for the hope of the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the promise uh, to which the Jews today, as Paul speaks, still hope to attain as they earnestly serve God, thinking they can earn their way into heaven by their good works and their obedience to the law. Uh, And for this hope, O king, that's actually found in Christ, I'm now being accused by the Jews. And then he looks at whatever Jewish opponents happen to be at this meeting, and he says, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead, specifically Jesus as the crucified, risen Messiah? Uh, You can... I would have loved to have seen that, uh, and maybe we'll get to see a replay in heaven. So Paul's saying the reason wasn't the real reason. I know my Jewish opponents are saying I'm a danger to uh, peace and quiet and tranquility, and I'm a violent threat to Roman authority and the Jewish authority, but I'm not. I'm just preaching a resurrected Messiah, and I'm preaching salvation by grace through faith, not by merit and works. And that's the problem. That's the real reason they hate me. Now, verses 9 through 18, uh, Paul says, You know what? I was a threat before my conversion to Christians. I'm not a threat to, to Rome or Judaism, and I'm not violent toward anyone anymore, but I was a violent threat to Christians before my conversion. Verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do these things, many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth as a um, Jew trying to earn his way into salvation. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem, ironically enough. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, the very same people that now are trying to ramroad me, but also when these Christians were, in some cases, put to death, I cast my vote against them. And, of course, you think of the stoning of Stephen especially, because we have some data on that, but this must have happened multiple times as well. And as I punished them before I was converted to Christ, I was a threat to Christians. And as I punished them, uh, often in synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. I mean, this was so bad, I was willing to go to Gentile cities to find these people and drag them back to Jerusalem. While so engaged on a business trip like that, as I was journeying to Damascus, Syria, with the authority and commission of the chief priests, as part of my job working for the Sanhedrin, at midday, high noon, bright, sunny day, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those uh, who were journeying with me. This light was all around, not just something in my head. This was a physical reality that covered all of us. This wasn't just a, a dream or a vision. This was a uh, actual experience. Uh, and when they, excuse me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goad is a stick with a sharpened point that you use to force uh, cattle in in your direction." And I think he's talking about Paul's conscience, and we'll have to find out in heaven. How much of this is true, but I think that uh, in the aftermath of watching Stephen um, stoned to death, of course, Paul was there watching it, watching the cloaks of those who were actually throwing the stones, very much in agreement, egging them on. But as you remember in the book of Acts, Stephen gives this incredible Old Testament presentation uh, confirming 
uh, the fact that Jesus was the Christ based in the Old Testament. I got a feeling that and other inputs Paul's had have been in the back of his mind bothering him. His conscience has been, as it were, a goad trying to get him to rethink everything. And now, boom, you get this amazing, and I think God, God has him on a glide path to salvation, certainly. Uh, sometimes people say, well, Jesus, it would appear to me on my road to work. I'd become Christian too. Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, a lot of people who saw miracles, like the vast majority of people who saw and or experienced miracles don't become believers in Christ, both in biblical times and current times. But I will say that miracles can accelerate the process for those who are going to believe anyway. And that's what I would say about Paul here. But uh, he's just saying, I, I know you've had a rough uh, internal struggle but now we're going to turn the key and let you figure out what's going on. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? Is this God the Father? Is this the angel Gabriel? Is this Moroni? Who's talking to me here? Um, and the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The church is the body of Christ. You persecute the church. You're persecuting Christ. Uh, but the voice goes on of the Lord. Get up. Stand on your feet, Paul. For this purpose I have appeared to you. To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things you've seen, not only to this experience you're having now, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, uh, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you primarily. Remember Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a heavenly inheritance among those who have been positionally sanctified by faith in me. So the reason wasn't the real reason Paul was being attacked legally and physically by his opponents, and he explains that. Paul had been a violent threat to Christians, but now he is one. And he's not a violent threat to Romans or Jews. Now, verses 19 through 20, he says, My thing is to share Christ with others, especially Gentiles. Verse 19, So King Agrippa, Paul goes on, I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus as soon as I got to town and interacted with Ananias there. I immediately started preaching and sharing the gospel of Christ, and also at Jerusalem, and I went back at the end of the tail end of that business trip, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent, uh, that they should metanaeo, change their mind about their sin. They got it themselves. They can't fix it. Their Savior, he's the only one who can. And then turn to God. You turn to God in faith by changing your mind about whatever you thought about your sin, usually we rationalize it or deny it. Uh, ourself, sometimes we try to cover our sin, like the fig leaves Adam and Eve used to cover their nakedness. And or we demote Jesus from a savior to a helper or make him just a virtuous martyr or something like that. Or whatever it is. But Paul's just summarizing the essence of his ministry to get people, especially Gentiles, but certainly Jewish folks as well, to change their mind, to trust in Jesus Christ, and then as believers to bear fruit, perform these appropriate to salvific repentance. Now, verse 21 through 23, we go back to the original theme, the reason 
wasn't the real reason. For this reason, not because I'm a threat to them violently, I'm going to hurt them or destroy the temple, not because I'm a danger to Roman civil authority, but for this reason, because I'm preaching Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, for this reason, verse 21, Acts chapter 26, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death, I mean, by beating me up, beating me to death. Uh, Forget about due process of law. So, having obtained help from God, I stand uh, in front of you to this day, uh, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said what was going to take place, namely that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection, uh, that the Christ was to suffer as the Lamb of God and take away the sin of the world and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. He'd be the issue in the issuer of eternal life. Okay? Now, that's Paul's uh, defense. His presentation before Agrippa, Festus, and a large crowd there in, in Caesarea. Uh, you remember that this King Agrippa we're talking about is King Agrippa the second, he's the great grandson of Herod the Great. He's the son of Herod Agrippa, uh, one who actually had James the apostle martyred back in Acts 12. But Paul's just basically saying the reason that I'm being attacked and being prosecuted here isn't the real reason. Uh, the reason these people hate me is because I preach a crucified risen Savior. I preach because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. And Christ died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. The Bible says that God so loved the world, that means God loves you, that he gave his only begotten son for you as your savior, as your substitute, to live a perfect righteous life, to fulfill the law as it were for you, to die as a SAS, substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross, to pay your sin debt and my sin debt, and then to be gloriously resurrected, literal bodily supernatural resurrection. A dead Savior can't get you from earth to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. So, we see Paul's final defense in Caesarea. Now let's look at verses 24 through 29. Paul urges the governor, Festus, and King Agrippa, to receive Christ. Gotta love this guy, man. He just keeps coming. He just keeps coming. Uh, look at verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, and several commentators point out, it almost sounds like Festus is interrupting him here, but in fact, probably what happened is Paul just stopped talking for a moment, because when you look at the way this content, his content is structured, it had a beginning, middle, and an end, and the end kind of went back to the beginning. So I, I think he's essentially done, as opposed to an interruption. So there's a dramatic pause, and then um, Festus, the governor, said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're insane. You're talking about people rising from the dead? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Your great learning is driving you mad. Now realize Festus is a Roman, uh, pagan, pragmatic politician, and he's saying, man, you're getting away, you, you take the Bible way too seriously. I remember a long time ago, we had uh, 
a, a visitor at our church here, and uh, she and her family came on a Sunday morning, and I recognized her because I knew she worked part-time behind the desk at the Simmons Center, where we all go and work out every day. Not all of us, but some of us. And uh, glad to have her. She and her family seemed to be happy to be there, and they left kind of quick after I didn't get the chance to talk to them. But then fast forward after lunch that same day, uh, I had a little time, so I put my uh, exercise togs on and went to the Simmons Center, not realizing she was going to be behind the desk, and she was. And so I walked in there. I was kind of surprised. i got to show my card to get in. And I never do this. Uh, as a young pastor, I probably did it, but I don't do this anymore, uh, ever. Uh, but I did it this time because I was kind of surprised to see her. I just saw her at church. I said, did you like, well, I said something like, uh, boy, I was glad to, glad to have you church today. What do you think? And that was a dumb thing to ask. That's, that's a loaded question. Preachers should never ask people that because if they don't tell you, it's probably going to be bad when you ask them. I said, what do you think? And there's a long pause and I knew I was in trouble and she said, y'all take the Bible too seriously. <laughs> and you know, when I first heard that, I thought, well, at least she kind of understands us. And, you know, if that's the worst thing she can say about us, I mean, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good thing. I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, even though it's obviously wasn't something she was interested in. Uh, but then I realized that Oklahomans, when they say y'all, that's singular and all y'all's plural. So she wasn't just saying the church as a whole takes the Bible too seriously. She was saying I take it too seriously, <laughs> which was kind of implying nobody else does, but just me. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of Festus's reaction here. Paul, you're taking these Hebrew scriptures way too seriously. You're crazy. Look at what Paul does. He doesn't get defensive, but he just kind of goes back, uh, to his main point that, uh, you need to respond to this truth. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for they've not been done in a corner, meaning their public knowledge. Uh, king Agrippa has been around here a long time. You're just brand new. You, you don't know the lay of the land. But everything I've said, you can verify. No problem. Verse 27, Paul looks at King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You believe Isaiah uh, 53, you believe Psalm 22, don't you? You believe uh, Exodus 12, uh, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, all, all these wonderful truths about Messiah, Lamb of God. Uh, you believe the prophets, don't you, Agrippa? I know you do. Agrippa ap- replied to Paul and said, you know, at the rate you're going, in a short time, you will persuade even me to be a Christian. Now, I added a little there to get the, the, uh, the point, but uh, Paul is taking the invitation directly to the two VIPs among many people who are at this this uh, event, this hearing. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all, everybody, all y'all who hear me this day, might become such as I am. Except for these chains. <laughs> you know, he's uh, got handcuffs on. But other than that, I said, I wish you'd be just like me. I wish you would turn from thinking you could earn your own salvation. You don't need a Savior. I wish uh, you would turn from thinking you're too bad to be saved. I wish you'd trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. So, Paul, you got to love this guy, man. He urges the two VIPs to receive Christ. 
and of course they kind of decide not to decide, which is, you know, when you make, when you think, uh, I'm, I'm going to just make no decision. When you decide you're going to make no decision, that's actually a no decision. Uh, we talked about that recently, so you probably already know that. Uh, our final section here, verses 30 through 32, after uh, Paul makes his defense and then urges the governor and the king to receive Christ. Uh, here's irony and innocence. Even though Paul is innocent of all charges, he's going to Rome for a legal hearing before Emperor Nero. And he's doing that because he's already played the trump card in the previous chapter that he appealed to Caesar. So he wouldn't be forced to go back to Jerusalem and get killed on the way or there before uh, uh, murderous uh, opponents, right? So he's he's doing the right thing. And this is God's will for him to go. Back in chapter uh, 23, verse 11, we read, uh, On the night following a dust up in Jerusalem, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, uh, Cheer up, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed from my cause here in Jerusalem, you must also witness at Rome. And so this is going to happen. It's just a different timing and different means than Paul could have possibly expected or imagined. Uh, look at verse 30. Even though he's innocent, he's going to Rome. The king stood up, King Agrippa and the governor and Bernice, uh, the governor's sister, and those who were sitting with them. And uh, when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, once they get away from the crowd there, they're just kind of uh, uh, shaking their heads, saying, you know, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. He, he's fine. He's, he's not breaking any rules here. Uh, and Agrippa said to Festus, you know, it's ironic but true. This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, you and I know better. Paul's going to Rome. Uh, he's not going to be set free here. But these guys, like uh, Pontius Pilate, kind of washing their hands, saying, hey, it's not on us. We're, we're fine with Paul. But uh, the, you know, his opponents in Jerusalem have forced him to appeal to Caesar. And so he's going. You know, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. And then next week, Lord willing, in verse chapter, uh, chapter 27, we'll see uh, Paul's vexing an amazing, talk about the amazing race, the amazing uh, voyage uh, to to Rome for Paul in chapter 27. So take this to heart. The reason isn't necessarily the real reason. Now, here's the thing. Let me let me give you this disclaimer before you walk away with this principle, because I live in the real world too, and and each one of us, even Michael Birch, is finite only has a certain amount of physical stamina. Even Chuck Norris, okay? Time, talent, finances. We only have a limited amount of time, stamina, talent, finances, which among other things means we simply can't do everything we'd really like to do. And so we certainly can't do everything everybody else thinks we should do for them or with them every single time. It's just not possible. So there are a lot of good reasons not to do certain things. However, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about uh, you figuring out your priorities and your boundaries and w- what good things you're not going to have time to do so you can focus on the best things. That's a really important principle for Christians and for anybody, really. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the flip side of that. We're flipping up the flip. Uh, we're flipping flip side. We're talking about uh, the flip side of that principle, namely the human beings 
including every good Christian listening to this uh, message today, can easily, quote-unquote, rationalize selfish and stupid things we do with excuses that really aren't valid, with reasons that really aren't the real reason. And it's bad when I uh, give reasons to people to excuse myself from doing things I should do for them or with them. But it's even worse when I lie to myself and I never lose that 10 pounds or I never get in that prayer group or I never uh, apply for that uh, promotion or I never uh, uh, give 110% on my testing in school or in the military. I never kind of do a lot of good things I should do, but I always have a reason. Well, I, I'm too busy to study, so, uh, you know, I just uh, maybe in high school I never studied. I made A's and B's, so uh, as I'm trying to become a brain surgeon, I don't have time to study now, and so certainly I'll be the world's greatest brain surgeon. You're not even going to get into medical school with that approach, just so you'll know. Uh, somebody once said, uh, well, God's got a plan, right? And all the details, all the data points, all the events are based on that plan. Yes, that's correct. So that means I could blindfold myself in New York and walk across the street at uh, uh, high noon during rush hour in front of a train. If it's not God's will, the train wouldn't kill me. And uh, some theologian said, well, here's the thing. If you blindfold yourself during rush hour and you walk in front of a train at noon in New York City, it is God's will for you to die, right, to say all no. But it's bad when we kind of underachieve in our connections with other people for with reasons that aren't really the real reason. But it's even worse when we lie to ourselves and we underachieve. It seems to me like, to oversimplify just slightly, that Christians can live a life of giving, generally, or we can live a life of giving excuses. That's a killer. I'd like you to think of one thing in your life. It might be spiritual, it might be physical, it might be job-related, family-related. I want you to think of one thing that you know you ought to be doing consistently that you don't, and you've been able to explain away. But deep down, you know the reason you're giving isn't the real reason. And that'd be a great practical application of this principle. Okay? Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer.